Joshua chapter 5, we're going to read the whole chapter. It's not that long. It's 15 verses. In Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites, who were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea or on the coastline, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel, until we had crossed over, that their heart melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself, and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself, and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on that very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Then it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Remember our theme. The book of Joshua is about victorious Christian living in Christ. In Joshua, we saw the children of Israel 
crossing over the river in chapters 1 through 5, conquering the enemy in chapters 6 through 12, claiming the inheritance in chapters 13 through 24. Before the children of Israel conquer their enemy and claim their inheritance, there's still some preparations in their heart that they have to make. An athlete prepares for competition. A soldier prepares for battle. And the Christian must prepare for victorious Christian living. There's one kind of preparation that is often overlooked. We know that athletes and armies need the appropriate resources. They need proper nutrition. They need proper supplies. They need the proper equipment. They need to get their head on straight. So there is a time of mental preparation. There is a time of physical commitment. There is a time of emotional preparation. But what is often neglected is spiritual preparation. Or what I call personal consecration. And that's part of what this chapter is going to be about. Consecration precedes conquest. What does that mean? Consecration is a word that we use to describe the complete dedication of a person or an object to a specific purpose or use. We have an illustration in the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776. When Thomas Jefferson was 27 years old, he wrote the now famous Declaration. At the end of the Declaration, it says these words, and for the support of the Declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, that's his way of saying God, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. The founding fathers consecrated everything they were and everything they had for the purpose of establishing the United States as a free and an independent nation. So once again, consecration means the complete dedication of a person to an object or to a specific purpose. The children of Israel would have to consecrate themselves and spiritually prepare for the very real physical battles that were right in front of them. One of the popular songs that we sing is, goes something like this. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life. To know and follow hard after you. And so there's going to be five essentials that are going to be talked about in this chapter. And we're going to go over them very quickly. We could spend a whole week on each one, but we're not going to. 
The first essential is the, the crossover, which we briefly talked about in chapter 4. Remember in verse 1, it says, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we, notice Joshua's the writer of the book. He's a participant in the story. We had crossed over that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Remember what we already learned in chapter 4. The children of Israel have crossed over. By some accounts, scholars estimate between 1 and 2 million people. In 1991, during the thing called Operation Desert Storm, uh, Norman Schwarzkopf had to figure out a way to negotiate an invading army of close to a million people to go into the country of Iraq and occupy it. Now think about this. Joshua has to take between one and two million people across a raging river and set up a camp and occupy the land. Remember we've already talked about this crossing over is a type and a picture of crossing over from the place of defeat to the place of victory. From the place of death to the place of life. In other words, the crossing of this Jordan becomes a type and a picture of leaving an old life and entering in and embracing a new life. So what happens when the children of Israel cross over? Now remember what we just read. The moment that they cross over, the enemies of Israel are demoralized. They're even paralyzed. The people who occupy the land are terrified because God has supernaturally brought them to this place. The thought, they thought that the Jordan River would provide the barrier necessary to keep the children of Israel out of their territory. The people of Canaan's morale is at an all-time low. And the people of Israel's morale is at an all-time high. And again, it becomes a type and a picture. In a very real sense, for like when you were saved. Do you remember when you got saved, how terrifying that was to all of your family and friends? It didn't just terrify your family and your friends. It mortified and terrified Satan and his armies. Of demons. Think about it. When you made a commitment to pray a prayer, to receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, darkness is behind you, light is in front of you, death is behind you, life is in front of you, judgment is behind you. Now you would think. Again, because of this particular thing, now would be the time to strike. If ever there was a time to take over your enemies and conquer the land, this would be it. But Joshua is going to pray and prepare, and the Lord is going to reveal to them that there's going to be a time of preparation. Now remember, your old life, 
was filled with enslavement to sin. Your old life was full of complaining and fear. Your old life was a life that was marked by turning from God. Your old life was a life of unbelief. We could go on and on covering the wilderness wanderings, the distrust, the defeat, the rebellion, the sexual immorality, the worldliness, the lawlessness, the worship of self, and every other form of idolatry that used to take place in your life. But now God's calling you to be different. And they are in the land. They are in God's land. They are in the land of promise. They have been able to mark a new beginning. They're supposed to be in the place of conquest and victory and peace and rest and security and protection and provision by God and abundance and fruitfulness and fulfillment and satisfaction of blessing and guidance and experiencing the presence of God. This is the place where the children of Israel are going to be rooted and grounded in God's word and God's fellowship and prayer. Can you see the type and picture for your own life? When you got saved, it was supposed to mark a new beginning for your life. Instead of emptiness, fullness. Instead of depression, joy. And again, you would think that they would rush into battle. But God knew that the people remained un prepared. The children of Israel needed to be spiritually prepared for the hardships ahead. And so the Lord is going to have them wait and rest. And clearly victory must begin with the crossing over the land. So even in this first sentence, I'm, I'm stressing this because guess what? Unless you've crossed over all the rest of these things won't matter. They will be meaningless to you. If you've never known what it means to know Jesus, to know him and love him, to experience him in your life, in your heart, if you've never left the old life, it's going to be very difficult for you to embrace the new life. Clearly, victory will be crossing over into the land. But in order to cross over into the land and live a life of victory, you're going to have to leave the life of defeat. You have to forsake your old life and embrace the new life in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul wrote, Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. You used to be different. And now things have changed. And so we see the second essential. It isn't just crossing over. It's to make a cut away from sin. In verses 2 to 5, look what it says. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Is he suggesting you get circumcised twice? No. The first circumcision took place when the children of Israel left Egypt during the Passover. 
So what he is basically saying is, guess what? All of the children who were born in the wilderness, have they've have they been born and they're walking and they're living for the last 38, close to now 39 and coming up on 40 years, they haven't celebrated a single Passover and they haven't circumcised their children according to the covenant. And so it says in verse 3, so Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. I know, you would think, couldn't you come up with a better name like Pike's Peak or Mount Everest? But when you're reading the text, you get an idea of what they did there and what happened there. And it says in verse 4, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way. Remember? Because of their rebellion and their disobedience and unbelief, the whole generation is going to perish in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. The question that you should be asking yourself of the text is, well, why not? Why weren't they circumcised along the way? In verse 6, it says, For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn their fathers that he would give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Why hadn't they circumcised their children? Why hadn't they honored the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of Moses? It's because they were living in rebellion in partial obedience, in unbelief. The wilderness wanderings and their unbelief caused a kind of temporary suspension, if you will, of the covenant relationship with God. In other words, they weren't honoring God and they weren't obeying God, but it becomes something that you and I should be thinking about right at this very moment. And that is when rebellion sets in and disobedience sets in and unbelief sets in and doubt sets in, we begin to walk away from the promises that were made. And so the wilderness wanderings and their unbelief temporarily suspended the covenant unbelief and disobedience and their refusal to enter the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give them look what he says a land flowing with milk and honey they began to adopt the ways of the world they didn't honor and obey God and walk in submission and obedience they decided to do what they wanted to do. And in verse 7, look what it says. Then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place. For they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till everyone was healed, or till they were healed. Do you understand what's happening? With the crossover, 
and a willingness to enter into the land and live a life of abundant life and victory, they would have to renew the covenant that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Moses. It was time to renew the covenant of circumcision. And some might argue, well, look, if ever there was a time not to do circumcision, it's now. We're in a new place, in a new land with new enemies. And if we cut off our foreskins, it's going to make us vulnerable and physically disabled. But what you may not be understanding is that this isn't just a religious right that separates them from the rest of the nations. Remember part of the point of circumcision. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are going to embrace this covenant as a sign and a symbol, a mark in their flesh concerning their very real relationship with the God of heaven. It was time to renew it in spite of the fact that it's going to cause pain and it's going to make them vulnerable. Preparation, consecration, a time of vulnerability is going to require that they trust the Lord, that they rely on the Lord, that they believe in the Lord. So when Joshua receives the command of the Lord, there's instant obedience. Joshua creates flint knives with which to make precise cuts. He circumcises the young men. Now remember what that means is he's circumcising all of the young men under the age of 39. Don't think of this as all the babies being circumcised. This is every single male under the age, I'm going to suggest to you, of 39 to restore the sign or the mark of the commitment of their covenant relationship with the Lord. The first generation died because of their terrible sin and their broken covenant. And in verse 9 it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. So remember, after the Jews' safe and supernatural crossing, the Lord commands them to receive the mark of the covenant given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. Collectively, they've gone through this experience of death, of cutting away. Now, remember, for the Jewish people, physical physical circumcision was a picture. It's a type of a spiritual truth. Now, the sad thing was when you fast forward into the time of Jesus and into the time of the writing of the New Testament, circumcision, the physical ritual itself, became more important than the spiritual truth that it taught. In Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, Paul talks to the Jewish people about this very subject. 
Because the Jews identified themselves as people of the circumcision. In verse 25 of chapter 2 of Romans, it says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. Let me put it to you in hopefully terms everyone can understand. In our culture and society, men who are married wear a ring on their left hand on this finger. As a sign, as a covenant, as a symbol that they're married. Ladies, what's more important to you? If a man takes off his ring and remains faithful to you in the marriage or keeps the ring on and still is unfaithful to you in the marriage, does the presence or the absence of the ring make you faithful or unfaithful or is it the way you actually live your life? And see, what happened to the Jewish people, the symbol became more important than the spiritual truth that it taught. And the spiritual truth that circumcision was teaching was that you were a covenant people who agreed to submit and obey God. And so the children of Israel in Joshua's time knew it wasn't simply the marking of the flesh. It was a representation of the putting away of sin. Just like they're cutting away a piece of their flesh. They're cutting away sin. And they're, go they're agreeing to walk in holiness. In a sense, the Lord is basically saying, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to be your champion. I will fight your battles in Canaan. I'm going to give you repeat victories over your enemies. But before I fight for you, I want you to bear in your body the mark of the covenant or the agreement that we've made with one another. And so we see the first thing, you have to leave the old life and enter into a new life. We now see the second thing, I want you to keep the promises that you made to me when you got saved. Do you remember when you prayed that prayer? Lord Jesus, if you'll just come into my heart, if you'll just forgive my sins, I believe that you are who you say that you are. I want to walk in obedience and submission to you. I want to love you and serve you and give you my life and dedicate my life to you. That's what he's looking for. So the circumcision, again, is a picture of putting off the old man of the flesh, a cutting away from sin. In the New Testament, Paul writes, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What Paul is saying to the Christian is, if you are a Christian, you didn't just cut away a small part of your life. Jesus came into your life. In the Bible, your flesh is everything that you are apart from Christ. Your flesh isn't just simply the physical muscle and bone and sinew that make up your body. Your flesh is everything that you are 
Not just the bad things, but even the things that you think are good. You might be reasonably intelligent or gifted. You might have some special ability. But what Paul is saying is that when Jesus comes into your life, he cuts away everything that you used to be so that he can replace it with himself. The putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh is a reference to the old nature, the fallen nature. And so when we are saved, when we experience the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of our life, we are committed to serving God instead of serving sin. And so for the Jewish people, the renewal of the covenant would have been their way of saying, I don't want to serve sin anymore. I want to serve God. And so in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And then Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death means deprive of power. It does mean to kill, deprive of power, render the thing impotent, render it unable to function in your life. So Paul told the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul uses the metaphor, not of a simply cutting away of the flesh, of a certain part of the flesh, but an actual crucifixion and death. So here's my question to you. In the first century, was crucifixion painful? answer is yes. Do you suppose these young men up to the age of 39 experiencing cir circumcision, it's a time of pain. I think that that's exactly right. And so there is a certain sense. In order to abandon sin in our life, it sometimes involves work and pain. When you make the conscious, deliberate choice, when you remind yourself that the life that you used to live is not the life you now live, you are meant to live in Christ. Jesus is your Lord. You were meant to live in him. William Graham Scroge writes, quote, we should die because we're dead. We should live because we're alive. We should conquer because we've won. What does that mean? Jesus has died. And when he died, you died in him. Jesus lives. Now you live in him. Jesus has conquered death. 
So you get to conquer death. Not on your willpower. Do you think any of you will bring yourself back to life by your own wishful thinking? Not a single one of you. But each and every one of you will come back to life by a power that's beyond you. You see, one day you will breathe your last breath. You'll have your last cup of coffee or tea. It'll be the last Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. And you'll lay your head down and you will go to sleep until the time that Jesus wakes you up. And so circumcision would have been painful. Look at verse 8. So is putting off the flesh. But I want you to think about this. There are a lot of people who want a painless Christianity. There are a lot of people who have to deal with drugs and alcohol, addiction. They want sobriety, but they don't want to do any of the work. They don't want to have to make the painful choices of saying no to their sin or saying no to the addiction. But they also know that it's not good enough to say no, that you have to say yes to something way more powerful and something way more important. So, here's my question to you. Have you been crucified with Christ? Is your old man, that means everything that you were prior to Christ, dead to sin? Have you abandoned self-will for Christ's will for your life? If so, Jesus is living in you. Now, I want you to go one step further. You see, it's one thing to say, Jesus is living inside of my life and inside of my heart. I want to go one step further. Further and ask the question, do people see Jesus in you? Do they see the influence of Christ in your heart and Christ in your life? Are you living in him and for him and with him by his word? In the Old Testament, putting away a small portion of the flesh was a sign and a symbol. In the New Testament, the Christian puts away the whole body of flesh. So what happened at Gilgal? The Lord rolled away the reproach of Egypt from the children of Israel in verse 9. What does that mean? What was the reproach of Egypt in the other nations? This was the ridicule and the criticism heaped on the children of Israel who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years that God couldn't really bring them to the place of promise. Yeah, yeah, God did the miracles in Egypt. Yeah, yeah, God delivered them. Yes, yes, God walked them into the wilderness. But they were been wandering around for years and years and years, living a life of rebellion and disobedience and half-hearted. Whatever kind of a God this is, it's not the God that can actually bring you into abundant life and joyful living and victorious living. That's what's taking away the reproach is. Taking away the reproach is for every single person who ever said to you, I thought you said you were a Christian. I am. Where's the joy in your life? Where's the happiness in your life? Where's the abundance in your life? Where's the grace and the mercy in your life? Where is it in your life that it reflects that you are a different person 
The heathen nations were basically saying, your God isn't really strong enough to take you to the place where he said he would take you. Now they're in the land. God has taken them to the place where he said he would take them. And that's the invitation that we have as Christians in this victorious living and this abundant living. It isn't just simply enough to be saved. Oh, being saved is better than not being saved. But there's a big difference between being saved and then living a life of abundance in obedience to the Lord. And so look, this is the third essential. Consider God's power to deliver. Look what it says in verse 10. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. I want you to think about what you just read. The feast of the Passover had not been kept. One year? No. Two years? No. Ten years? No. 20 years? No. 30 years? No. 39 years. They had not kept the Passover. But they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at the twilight on the plains of Jericho. The Passover is a type and a picture of Jesus the death of Jesus, of the blood of Jesus, of the sacrifice of the lamb. Spiritual revival will always reveal the cross to a new generation. Abundant life, victorious life, abundant living and victorious living begins with a new appreciation of what Jesus has done on the cross. The satisfaction that Jesus has brought that his death on the cross not only forgives you of your sin but makes you accepted by God. So when it says... Consider God's power to deliver. Is, is this an invitation for us to have Passover dinners or Seder dinners or to strictly observe the Passover? That's not what's being said, but that's what's being done in the text. Clearly, it means to remember God's power to deliver the people from sin, from bondage, from slavery, through the shed blood of the Lamb, and that's exactly what we see in the opening verses of the New Testament when John the Baptist points at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the power of God to deliver you, not only out of slavery, not only from the bondage of sin, but to give you the kind of power necessary to live the abundant life. By the way, I want you to think this through. No Jewish man could celebrate the Passover unless he was circumcised. Did you know that? So think about what you're reading now. Joshua is going to renew the covenant of circumcision. When he renews the covenant of circumcision with all the men and all of the families, now they're able to remember the Passover. They're 
able to celebrate the Passover. They're able to mark the deliverance from slavery. I want you to think again. Their old life was suddenly forever changed. Everything about their old life was gone. The wilderness wanderings, gone. Circumcision, a renewal of a covenant. The celebration of the Passover. A remembrance of the delivering power of God. It was time for a new beginning. Remember, they were leaving the wilderness forever. They're going to occupy the land forever. There has to come a time in your life where you leave that old life behind and you experience the power of God to fully and finally deliver you. And then the fourth is essential. Celebrate your new life and power. Now again, with the Passover, it's a type and a picture of true conversion. We make a clean break with the old life. We have a new life. We're free to live our lives in Christ. And in verses 11 and 12, look what it says. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover. Unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Where are they? In Gilgal. What have they done? Circumcision. Passover. And now the feast of unleavened bread. In verse 12, then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Now, I want you to think about this. In the new land, with their new life, they have new food. The food that they used to have was manna that came down from heaven. The Lord is going to give them new food. This is the grain or the produce of the land. Now again, I want you to think this through. In the wilderness, the manna came from heaven. In the land, the manna comes from the or the bread comes from the earth. It becomes a type and a picture again for the Christian. Jesus leaves heaven and he comes to the earth in an incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. And then Jesus is going to die. And he's going to be raised from the dead as a type of first fruits or first grain. Now again, is Jesus the bread that came down from heaven? Yeah. But Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat or some other seed is buried, it can't bring forth fruit. Jesus dies. He is buried. And then he is resurrected. And he brings forth new life. The grain of the first fruits speaks of Jesus' resurrection power. The order of events reminds us of Jesus' coming to the earth, his incarnation, his death, 
his burial, his resurrection. They keep the Passover, death. They eat of the land, resurrection. The children of Israel exchange the wilderness for the land. And that's what you do. You exchange the old life for the new life. Life in the land represents the living in the power of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so Paul in the New Testament will make note and he'll say, Now may the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you. This isn't about you simply making a new decision. To be a new person. To live a new life. This is the opportunity for you to experience the resurrection of power of Jesus in your life. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread was celebrated immediately after the Passover. For seven full days, the Jews were to put all leaven out of their tents and houses and out of their presence. They were to eat no bread, no yeast, no leaven. Remember, leaven and yeast becomes a type and a picture of sin and the horrible influence of sin. And remember, the reason why they have unleavened bread, they have to leave quickly out of Egypt. They don't have time. Do you want to live a victorious life? Do you want to live an abundant life? Then you have to wake up every morning and make the statement, I don't have time for sin anymore. I want to leave that behind. I don't want that to be a part of my life. And so the children ate unleavened bread and parched grain. Do you know what the parched grain is in your text? Remember the Amorites who are fleeing for their lives because they're terrified? When they leave, they leave all of their grain supplies. Let me give you an illustration. It would be like if you were called to occupy Littleton, Colorado, and all of the pagans and the heathens and the unbelievers fled, and they left Safeway and King Super's empty. And all you have to do is walk in the store and fill your carts with food. The children of Israel are walking into this place and they're filling their carts with food. God had made a miraculous provision for them in the wilderness. And now he's going to make a miraculous provision for them in the land. And so we act quickly to put away evil from our lives. We are free. We are clean. We are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. In 1 John 1, 7 we read, The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. In Isaiah we read, Wash you. Make yourself clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. You see, it isn't just let go and let God. There's a role that you play. There's a participation that comes from you in living this life. 
the fifth essential, a confrontation with the commander. Look what it says in verses 13 through 15. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes. Pause. Do you know why he's lifting his eyes? Because his eyes are down. I'm going to suggest to you that the reason why his eyes are down is because he's praying. He's seeking the Lord. He's looking for guidance and direction. He's praying and planning the occupation of this great country. And he lifts his eyes and he looks and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? So he said, no, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now I want you to think about, again, what you've read. Joshua has an, a, an encounter with the true commander, the true general, the true leader of the Lord's army. Joshua is alone. He's near Jericho, planning, praying to take the city. He looks up. He sees a man with a drawn sword. He says, are you a friend or are you foe? The man identifies himself as the captain of the Lord's host. Joshua falls down in submission and reverence. And then he asks for a message from the Lord. Here's the Lord's message. Take off your sandals. The promised land is holy. Do you understand the message? When he says, take off your sandals, the promised land is holy. Remember, holy means set apart for a specific purpose. This is the Lord's message. This is the Lord's way of saying, this is my land. This is my land. The moment he says that this land is holy, he's saying that it belongs to him. Him, It's separated for him. And the life that God's called you to, the life that he's called you to occupy, the place that he's called you to occupy, it belongs to him. You belong to him. Your present circumstances belong to him. Your future belongs to him. Now, why is this an important message? He's saying, this land is mine. It belongs to me. In that message, there's another message. The message is, victory is assured. Victory is assured. What the Lord wants, the Lord will have. The Lord will have what belongs to him. Do you belong to him. Who is this guy? Some people believe it's a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he's the angel of the Lord who appeared in times past to Moses. In Exodus chapter 3 verse 2, you'll remember an angel said, I am the Lord of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This angel of the Lord is sometimes called 
the angel of his presence. And again, some suggest that this is the angel that's been sent by God with the authority of God as the personal representative of the Lord. One of those two things is true. This is either a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And it reminded me that every once in a while we need a fresh experience, a a special experience with God. We all face times of discouragement and, and loneliness and emptiness and depression. We suffer from accidents or disease and sometimes the death of people that we care about. There's some overwhelming problem. There's some huge obstacle. There's some threatening loss. And we need to get alone with the Lord. And we need to meet the Lord. And we need to seek his face. We seek his presence. We seek his guidance. We seek his power. And then he becomes our helper in the time of need to give us a message that assures us of the victory. W.T. Richardson said, the mark of a saint is not perfection, but consecration. A saint is not a man without faults, but a man who has given himself without reserve to God. God isn't asking you to be Mr. or Miss or Mrs. Perfect. But to give yourself wholly, completely, fundamentally to the Lord. And the big lesson, the big lesson of the chapter. Consecration precedes victory. The time of preparation is so that you will be able to stand in the day of difficulty, in the battle. So the children of Israel, they're going to cross over. They're going to renew circumcision. They're going to celebrate the Passover They're going to appropriate the produce of Canaan. And then they're going to acknowledge the supreme leader, the commander-in-chief. And that's exactly the essentials that we experience for victory. We renew the promises. We celebrate the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus We appropriate the fruit in the place where God has placed us. And then we once again acknowledge that we're not the captain. We're not the leader. Jesus is. So before we can experience victory over the enemy, we have to experience victory over sin self and Jesus is our Passover Jesus is our covenant Jesus is our portion Jesus is the commander in the new year a new battle let's pray Heavenly Father Lord thanks for this time
The Bible's so filled with information to help us. And Lord, I pray for that person who wants the safety and security of a painless Christianity, one in which there is no sacrifice, there's no selflessness, there's no battle to be fought, no enemy to be overcome. Whatever they think about Christianity, it's not the Christianity that's in the Bible. Lord, we know that you are our champion. Lord, we know that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. Lord, we know that we're kept by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. But Lord, we also know that you're calling us to trust you, to believe in you, to rely upon you, to appropriate your promises and strength so that we can walk into the future that you've called us to walk into, the one that belongs to you, the one that assures us of victory. So again, Lord, I pray for that person who's wandered far and lived a life of doubt and rebellion and disobedience. Lord, I pray that today, today, today would mark a new beginning, a new life in a new land filled with new hope and a new future. In Jesus' name, amen.